Well, Happy New Year. All right, so two questions for you. How many of you made it till midnight? I was hoping more of you this hour than the last hour. There were a few last hour. My assumption was that you would come this hour. So congratulations, I made it to about 9.30. Uh, and then my second oldest daughter woke me up at 12.30 to make sure I didn't miss it. So I celebrated late with you guys last night. Second question, the obvious question, is how many of you made New Year's resolutions already? All right, all right. I know this is a hot take. Some people like New Year's resolutions and some people don't. Um, I am on the side where I like New Year's resolutions. Um, I would identify myself as an Enneagram 3, which is an achiever. I like to check things off a list. I like to like, know where I'm going um, and what I can accomplish over the next year. So one of the things my wife and I have been practicing for a couple of years now is in January at some point, when we can sneak away from our kiddos, we'll go to a coffee shop and we will look and reflect on the previous year's resolutions and we will uh, celebrate some that we accomplished and we'll look towards the next year. And we'll make resolutions for our mental health, our physical health, and our spiritual health. Um, and we'll try to find different things in those categories that we can encourage each other um, over the next year to accomplish. So it's been a fun, uh, fun process of what we've been able to do. But I, I think the reason why I like New Year's resolutions because there's potential for us to change. Right? Whether or not we can sustain that New Year's resolution for the entire year, but there's things that we can try to change in our own life. So there's that like little bit of hope that says maybe we can change. You know, so one of my resolutions last year was to not snack after 8.30. Now that one didn't last very long, <laughs> but I tried, right? The year before it was nine o'clock and I did much better. So I'm gonna try to do that one again. But it shows that we have a little bit of control over that change in our life. And as we look into scripture a little bit, I think scripture shows us, it uses a couple different words for change. And one word that I've grown very fond of is the word restore, right? So as we read through Psalms, you know, David used Psalms in Psalms 23, restore my soul as he's pleading with God. In Psalms 51, he says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. It shows this like inner demeanor of prayer, of renewal that he's asking for. And so what I wanted to do today was to dive into this idea of restoration with you as we journey into this new year. And so to journey into this idea of restoration, I wanted to meet with an expert um, to talk about restoration, somebody who has been practicing this. And how many of you guys have ever um, seen a house restored? Yeah, it's a, it's a fun journey, right? Maybe you've seen a marriage restored or a life restored. Well, I was able to meet with one of my buddies, buddy Rick, who restores cars kind of as a hobby. And he let me come out to his shop and ask him a ton of questions. I, I am not a car guy. I can't talk shop very well, but I can ask a lot of questions to learn about what restoration can look like. So there's going to be some pictures about the truck that Rick and some of his buddies restored. So his dad had this truck on his property for a while, for a long time. And you can tell it wasn't in the greatest of conditions. So Rick's three buddies, as any friend would do, convinced him to go pick up this truck, load it up on a trailer, and bring it back to his shop. Now from what I heard, I wasn't there, there was a few choice words that were said in trying to load and unload this truck, and through the whole process, as you might be able to tell. But what happened through this process 
is he said the first thing that they had to do once they got it into the shop was they had to strip the entire car apart down to its bare bones, down to the frame, so they could see everything that was wrong with it. It wasn't good enough just to sandblast the outside of the car, right? You don't want it just to look pretty on the outside without the deep work being done. So he stripped it down to see everything that was wrong with this truck so they could start the restoration process to return it to its original condition, right? And so that's what I want to dive into a little bit today, just kind of like this truck, this beautiful truck. You may remember this. We actually had this in the lobby for Trunk or Treat a few years ago, right? Look at that final project. I think so often we want this restoration process. We want to like skip forward to the end without knowing the process of what we had to go through to get there for it to be able to return to its original condition. All right, so what I want to dive into today is this idea of restoration. So what does restore actually mean? All right, so when we look up the word restore, it means to return to its original condition. And when I see that definition, there's two things that pop out of me, two things that I want to journey through today. When we say return, I see a process, right? Something has to happen for us to be able to return. And then I see the original condition. I think that's the condition in which it was created. So we have to understand what the original condition actually is. So that's what I want to look at today. I want to dive into this idea of restore. And so to do so, I want to look at our original condition. And I think what better place to start than in the beginning. So I'm going to summarize a little bit of Genesis 1 and 2 to look at the original condition in which we were created that I think God wants to do that restoration process in our own life. We have to know who we, were, who we were created to be. So as we journey through Genesis 1, we can see God's mighty hand as the creator, creating the heavens and the earth, the night and day, and the sea and the land, right? And then we get to day six, after he created the seas. Day six, he said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And so it was. Then God said, let us make mankind in our own image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. God blessed them. He said, be fruitful and multiply. And at the end of uh, chapter one, he said, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and morning. This was the sixth day. Now there's a few key observations that we can make as we begin to look at our original condition that we were created to be. The first one is simply this, that we are created in the image of God. We are created in the image of God. Now there's deep implications of what this means. Some theologians would, uh, would call this the Imago Dei. Right? I think it's easy to, to think that we are created to worship God. But the reality is God doesn't need us. He didn't create us to worship him. He created us as an expression of his love. 
when we understand God, when we understand the Godhead, right? He said, let us create God in our image. It's plural, insinuating the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In perfect unity, in perfect love, he creates us as an expression of his love so that we can represent that to the world. Right, so we're no longer living on our own, but we are an expression of his love. One theologian summarizes it this way. We are the creature through whom God's plans and purposes can be made known and actualized. The moral implications of the doctrine of the Imago Dei are apparent in the fact that if humans are to love God, then humans must love other humans as each is an expression of God. So this is the image in which we were created. We were created as an expression of God's love. And the uniqueness that God calls out at the end of the sixth day, right? If you look through the creation story after each day, days one through five, he says, it was good. But on day six, he said it was very good. All right, his tone changes just a little bit. And I think it's because there's a proud father moment by saying, mm, you are created in my image. It's something that he's proud of. It's something that, that he cares deeply for. Because we have to remember that you are Christ's, you are God's image bearer. And that he is proud of his creation. And that relationship that God has with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is what he wants us to experience. Right, that pure relationship that he created us for. And what does that relationship look like? And I can see, I, I can see at the end of Genesis 2 what that relationship is supposed to look like. As we journey through Genesis 2, we can see how God created Adam and Eve. God created Adam. He said, the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. And then God created Eve out of the rib of the man to bring alongside as a helper suitable, right? So a, a, a co-laborer who can journey alongside Adam to do the work that God called him to. And at the very end depicts the relationship that God had with man. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. They felt no shame. There was no guilt. There was nothing hindering their relationship. So then what is shame? Right, so my offhanded definition of shame, not my Webster's definition, but Dave's definition of shame is simply this. It's when our image of ourself doesn't meet the reality of the situation that we're in. And that will lead us to a moment of humiliation will bump up against our insecurities. It's that moment where your face turns beet red and you just want to hide in a corner. Now, we will all have different triggers for humiliation. Some things might embarrass me more than they might embarrass you. Like a time where my friend asked me to go pick up one of his kids from their, their daycare. And I, of course, said yes. Um, I had been with them a couple times, so I was familiar with their location. I knew what street it was on. It was a blue house with a white staircase that led up to it. So, of course, I said, yes, I'll, I'll pick them up. So, I drove down to the street where I remember the house being, and I drove to the blue house. But then what I noticed 
was there was two blue houses with white stairs leading up to the front door. And I couldn't remember which house it was. And so I have the uncanny ability to be falsely confident in situations that I probably shouldn't be. And so what I tell my kids is when you don't know what to do, just watch somebody else go before you. So what I did is I parked at the, the first blue house and I waited for just a minute. And then a car pulled up in front of me. Uh, a man got out, went up to the house and he left the house with a child and got back into his car. And so obviously this was the right house. So what I did is I parked in front of the driveway and I journeyed up the drive into the house. Uh, the blue house with the white staircase and I walked in to the front door and the, the foyer of the house was not a foyer that I recognized. The daycare provider was not a daycare provider that I recognized. And she didn't recognize me either. And so the first thing that she did was she just began to yell at me, get out, get out, get out! Instantly, I felt shame wash over my body. I turned to beat red and I ran as fast as I could back to my car. I got in and I drove up the street and I took a second. Right? So can you imagine somebody, a stranger walking into your house trying to take a child that's not theirs? Like, it doesn't fit very well. So I imagine that I terrified her as much as I was terrified. So I got back in my car, drove up the street, collected myself, went to the second blue house journeyed in and it was the right house. I got my friend's kid, we loaded up and took off. Right, so that's just one small moment of shame that I felt to the point where I actually, I hadn't told my wife or my spouse's wife until last night. I did not want to relive that story. We had a good laugh about it last night. Um, but that's what shame does. Shame leads us to a place where we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to push in. We don't want to share. We want to hide in the darkness. Right, so I don't know what shame looks like for you in your own life. But what shame usually does is it hinders relationship. And that is not how we were created to live. We weren't created to live in that shame and that guilt that we carry. And as we journey through this restoration process, God wants to wipe that shame and that guilt away because that begins hindering the relationships that we're a part of. And so let's start talking about this restoration process. And now today I'm just going to kind of scratch the surface a little bit. Over the next two and a half months, we're going to journey through a book called Good and Kind and Beautiful. And this is going to take a deeper dive into some of these issues. Um, in Side Pitch, since I help lead our group's ministries, we have groups that are actually following along with the sermon series. That if you haven't signed up or joined a group, there are tons of opportunities to be able to do so. Um, if you're joining us online, we actually have a digital growth group that meets during the week as well. So if coming here is not an option, that is a great option as well. But man, what an, what an awesome opportunity to continue to grow in your faith alongside other people. Because um, we're not called to do this faith journey alone. We're called to do it with other people. So if you want to dive in a little deeper, registration is open. I think it's on the back of that handout. Uh, you can sign up for groups now. But let's talk about this restoration process a little bit. And as I was thinking about restoration, I think Jesus gives us 
plenty of examples through his, his ministry in the Gospels of ways that he was able to show us what restoration looks like through the healing process, through uh, natural phenomenon where he's able to calm the stormy seas. And there's three times that he raises somebody who was dead back to life. So that's what I want to look at. I want to look at three stories where Jesus is bringing to somebody who's dead back to life. No, I'm not going to read these stories in their entirety. Um, I'm just going to summarize them uh, just for the sake of time. But I would highly encourage you, I think the verses are on there, uh, to go back and read them this week and find some similarities of your own. So let's go ahead and dive in. So John 11 is first. It's the story of Lazarus, right? Lazarus was Martha and Mary's brother. As you may remember, Martha and Mary, Jesus and his disciples went to their house. Uh, Martha was the one who was in the kitchen making food. Mary was the one who sat at Jesus' feet and listened the entire time. So Lazarus was their brother, and he fell sick. So when word got to Jesus, they said, Lazarus, the one whom you love. So it showed a deep connection that Jesus already had with that family. And so once news got to Jesus, he stayed where he was for two days and then journeyed to Judea um, two days later to find out that Lazarus had been dead for four days. And Martha and Mary were distraught. Uh, they, they were pleading with Jesus that if he would have been there, he, that he could have saved Lazarus. And I think Jesus was moved because this is where the famous verse comes in, where Jesus wept. I, I feel like he, he could feel their pain in the midst of their grief. So then what Jesus did, he walked to the tomb with his sisters, and he said, if you simply believe, right, he'll walk out of the tomb. So he walked to the tomb, and he had them roll away uh, the stone, and Lazarus had been dead for four days, so this was kind of a bold move, because if he was in there dead for four days, it would smell terrible. But as he rolled the stone away, Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus came out in his grave clothes, right? So he was no longer dead. Jesus brought Lazarus from death to life. The second story I'm going to uh, skim through or I'm going to summarize real fast is Luke 7, verses 11 through 17. This is the story about the widow's son. So Jesus and his disciples were traveling uh, to Nine, and he ran into a crowd. It was uh, a burial uh, group that was carrying um, a widow's dead son. And I think at that moment, Jesus knew the implications of that burial service, right? A widow, so had no, no husband anymore, and her only son had died, which was probably one of her only means and resources to sustain her. So Jesus saw this crowd and his heart went out to her. And some other translations say that he felt deep compassion for her. And he said, don't cry. So he went up to the briar and he touched it. And then all the bears stood still because you normally wouldn't touch something that was dead. Then he looked at the son and he said, young man, I say to you, get up. And he got up and he handed him back to his mother. And everybody who saw was in awe and the news of Jesus spread. So once again, Jesus was able to bring the widow's son who was dead back to life. In the third story, we can find in Matthew 9. This is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So you can find it in three different. They're all pretty similar. Um, but this is about the synagogue leader's daughter. 
So the synagogue leader came to Jesus and pleaded with him to heal his daughter who had just died. He believed that if Jesus simply touched her, that she would be healed. And so they headed back to the synagogue leader's house. And on the way, he was traveling with his disciples in a large crowd, which I imagine would be in very close quarters. This is where Jesus stopped. And a woman who had been bleeding for 37 years touched Jesus. And in this crowd, Jesus calls out, who touched me? And his disciples probably looked around aghast to say, everybody is touching you right now. What do you mean? But Jesus felt that the power go from him. And he made it a teachable moment for this lady. And he said, your faith has healed you. Now go. Right? So Jesus, with a couple distractions on his way to the synagogue leader's house, finally arrive. And they find that the house is filled with people that were lamenting. And so what Jesus does is he tells them all to leave. And he says, she is not dead. She is just sleeping. And everybody who is in the house proceed to laugh at him. Now, I don't know how you respond when a whole crowd of people laugh at you, not with you, but laugh at you. It's usually an indicator for me of humiliation, right? Usually a trigger for me of shame, but not Jesus, because he walks into his house with his disciples, with a couple of disciples and the synagogue leader, and he looks at the young lady and he says, little girl, I say to you, get up. And he grabbed her hand and she got up. Example number three of Jesus bringing somebody who was dead back to life. And as I looked through these three stories, there's a few similarities that I just want to call out. I think are important to understanding restoration. The first one is simply this. Jesus cares. Now this may be the one thing that you take away from our entire time together. And I think that's okay. Because as we look through each one of these stories, there's a moment where Jesus cares deeply for each of the people that he's interacting with. When we talk about Lazarus, we we hear that Jesus wept. The widow's son, he had deep compassion for her. We see that Jesus cares deeply. Whether you're in a state of grieving or a state of celebration, Jesus cares about his creation and he cares about you because he wants that relationship restored. And in doing so, Jesus is willing to push the boundaries. We often think there is a specific way for things to be done, a very linear process to somebody's story that somebody has to journey a specific way, but Jesus is always willing to push these boundaries. When he came and he touched the briar of the burial ceremony, he was willing to make himself ceremonially unclean. Everybody stopped and was in shock that he was willing to do that. When Jesus was walking to the synagogue leader's house and he said, she is just asleep, he was willing to push in to what shame could look like because he knew the full potential that that little girl was not dead but she was gonna come back to life because of the synagogue leader's faith and his belief. He was willing to push the boundaries. And the one similarity that I think as we look back into Genesis, in each one of these stories, Jesus spoke each one of them back to life. When Jesus approached the tomb with Lazarus, he said, Lazarus, come out. 
He, he said in a loud voice, and Lazarus walked out of the grave. When he saw the young man who was, die, who was dead, he said, young man, I say to you, get up. And he got up. When he saw the little girl, he said, little girl, I say to you, get up. Because when Jesus speaks, things happen. Are you in tune for when he's speaking to you? Because when, his, when he speaks, things happen. We need to be aware of that. And when we look back in Genesis, we see God is the creator, right? And he breathed his life into us. Genesis 2 verse 7 says this, Then God formed man and from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. If you want to truly start living, you need to allow God to speak and move in your own life. Because after God begins to speak, you can see at the end of each one of these stories, everybody was filled with awe and the news of Jesus continued to spread. And I think that's the lifestyle that we're called to live. It's to live in awe and gratitude for what God has done and allowing his, the news of what he's done to spread. So the last thing I wanna do is I wanna push into what the process of restoration looks like. And as I keep thinking about the process, I feel like even as I read through these three stories, no process is the same. So I want to talk about the process, things that we can expect along the way to be able to understand what this process of restoration should look like. Because when we talk about this process, right, the first thing that's very evident is that Jesus sees your full potential. We often when we talk about restoration, I think we would, when we talked about the truck in the very beginning, I think we would put ourselves in the shoes of the mechanic, of what are we able to fix and what we're able to control. But I think when we recognize Jesus seeing our full potential, we have to see ourselves as that beat up rusty truck that he found in the woods with bucket loads of dirt in the back. That sometimes he's just got to strip everything away and take us down to the frame so that we understand who we were truly created to be. Because he can see your full potential and who we are supposed to be. That relationship that he longs for us to have. To not walk in that shame or that guilt anymore, but to have that deep relationship with him that he longs for us to have. And then in the midst of this process, I think the hardest thing for me is time. Because for God, time is never an issue. I'm the, I'm the type of person that I like to get somewhere five minutes early, if possible. Having kids kind of makes that hard. But I love to be able to get there early, some, and sometimes it stresses me out when I'm not there on time. So for this, for this one, it's kind of hard for me, because for Jesus, time is never an issue. Because God works instantly, but we don't. And each one of these situations, once he arrived, it was the right time. And he breathed life into somebody and brought them back from dead to life. And then he, he would say, go and, and sin no more. Continue on your life, doing the work in which he has called us to do. So then we need to be in tune to what God is doing and carry on the restoration process along the way.
because time is never an issue. He was willing to wait um, after he had been told about Lazarus' death. He waited two more days before he journeyed back to Martha and Mary's. Right, there was a woman who touched him who had been bleeding for 37 years. Right, that's a long time. Time is never an issue for God. Because once he begins this transformation process, he knows our full potential. And then our last point. Because once we begin to change, change is hard, but transformation is going to create tension. Transformation creates tension. And I see this all over those three stories. When God began healing people and Jesus began restoring people from death back to life after he raised Lazarus from uh, the dead. The Jews went to the Pharisees and they plotted to kill Jesus after that because they didn't like what he was doing. There was tension in the midst of that. When Jesus touched the briar, all the bears stood still because he was doing something he wasn't supposed to be doing. There was tension in the midst of that. I feel Jesus doesn't take us out of that tension, but he calls us to live in that tension. We have to be okay with breaking some of those cultural barriers to live differently. Because once you've been transformed, once you've been restored through Christ, he's gonna use your story for his news to continue to spread. So he's not gonna take us out of that tension, but he's gonna help us to, to push through it. And I think John verses five, or chapter five, verses 24, really summarizes this well. He says, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, it will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. So I don't know what in your life is dead that God is trying to reach in to bring back to life, what he's trying to restore in your life. Maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's our belief, maybe it's a faith, maybe it's our dream. But I feel like God is doing this restoration process in each one of us. And I think the best way to close this out is I'm gonna finish with a story from C.S. Lewis. I'm a huge C.S. Lewis fan. I actually took one of his courses when I was in college. But I'm gonna read a, a short excerpt out of The Voyage of the Dawn Trader. Um, and this is the part where Eustace um, has a transformational experience with Aslan. Now Eustace is a character that is extremely hard to get along with. Um, he was arrogant, self-centered, and all around annoying. And in this part of the story, um, his crew uh, ends up on an island where they find a dragon's lair. Eustace is very greedy for the treasure and he puts on a gold bracelet and he falls asleep. And when he wakes up, he's been turned into a dragon. I looked up and I saw the very last thing I expected, a huge lion coming slowly towards me. And one queer thing was that there was no moonlight last night, but there was moonlight when the lion was. So it came nearer and nearer and I was terribly afraid of it. And you might think that being a dragon, I could have knocked any lion out easily enough, but it wasn't that kind of fear. I wasn't afraid of it eating me. I was just afraid of it. If you can understand, well, it came close up to me and they looked straight into my eyes and I shut my eyes tight, but that wasn't any good because it told me to follow it. And he's telling the story to Edmund and Edmund says, you mean it spoke? 
And then Eustace continues, I don't know. Now that you've mentioned it, I don't think it did, but it told me all the same. And I knew I had to do what it told me. So I got up and followed it, and it led me a long way into the mountains. There was a garden, trees and fruit and everything. In the middle of it, there was a well. The water was as clear as anything, and I thought if I could get in there and bathe, it would ease the pain in my leg. But the lion told me I must undress first. So I started scratching myself, and my scales began coming off all over the place. But just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and I saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly just as they had been before. Then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke. You will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of its claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just laid flat down on my back and I let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought I had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling off the skin, it hurt worse than anything I had ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel right off. You know, if you've ever picked a scab off a sore place, it hurts, but it's so fun to see it coming away. I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I had done myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. Then I caught hold, then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now, and I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm, and then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. And as I think about the restoration process, I think so often we take the stance that Eustace does. We continue to try to scratch our own scales off, not allowing the creator in to do the work that he so desperately wants to do. And sometimes we need to just lie down and allow him to make those deep tears in our life. He wants to strip us down to the frame because he can see your full potential and what a restored life would look like so that we can truly live the life that he wants us to. So what I wanna do is I wanna end with a few reflection questions that we can think about throughout this next week and the next year to come. So what is it in your life that needs to be restored. Maybe it's a relationship that's been severed. Maybe he's calling us to do the deep work for the dreams and maybe it's our faith, our belief that maybe has just wandered away through the past year that he's calling us to dive in a little bit deeper too. What deep work is God up to in your life? Are you aware of how he is spe of God speaking into your life, calling you to do the deep work yourself? 
I'd love to start the year off by asking who are three people in your life, three key people that you can commit to praying to for the entire year. Because I think restoration is a process we get to journey alongside other people. And if it's, God has no timeline, right? he, he doesn't do it on our timeline. We can commit to praying for people for an entire year to see what God can do in their life. And lastly, what do we need to focus more of our attention on? Will you please join me in a word of prayer? God, thank you for today. Thank you for letting us dive into this restoration process. I think so often we try to do this thing on our own, but we realize without your power, without your strength, without you, you breathing life into us, we are nothing. So God, today I pray that whatever you have on our hearts, God, that we can give those things to you, that we can allow you to bring that restoration into our own lives, that we can be a part of that process. Because God, you want us to remember the image in which we were created. We were created in your image to be an expression of your love to this world that so desperately needs you. So God, I pray that your spirit would come upon us, restore us back into your image.